My next guest is American writer, historian, actor and essayist whose acid wit has made him a hugely popular and indeed unpopular commentator. I like Gore when he's on this show. He says what is on his mind. Mr. Vidal has become a cultural icon. Prolific American novelist, playwright, screenwriter, historian, essayist. Conversationalist, actor, humorist and sometime political candidate. Would you welcome please Mr. Gore Vidal. From We Own This Town, this is Vidalatry. A look at the wit and wisdom in the spoken words of Gore Vidal. I'm Ryan Briegel. At the start of the 1970s, television viewers could see Gore Vidal on the very adult late-night sketch comedy show Laugh-In. At first, he was the subject of a skit helmed by Lily Tomlin as a phone operator, whose primary function seemed to be to make fun of the many ways his last name is pronounced. Is it Vidal, Vidal, Vidal? Even Gore pronounces it differently at different times. But on the January 12, 1970 episode, it also poked fun at Gore's popular novel Myra Breckenridge, which was about to be released in theaters as a film. Mr. Beadle, Miss Tomlin again. I don't want to even think that you hung. Well, par- Mr. Pardon me. Would, would I would I stop mispronouncing your name? Well, well, how do you say it? Vidal. G G Vidal. Not Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal, author of that trashy pornographic book, Myra Breckenridge, soon to be a major motion picture by 20th Century Fox. Well, I'll bet your mother's proud of you. (laughs) Well, of course I read it. And when the other girls in the office finished it, we had it burned. Just tell me, what right have you got to impose your vulgar degeneracy on the American people? Artistic merit. What's so artistic about a man who turns into a woman? I... I I sound like a good bet for the lead. (laughs) And then one year later, Gore made an appearance as himself, complete with a joke about William F. Buckley. One ringy dingy. Two ringy dingy. A gracious good afternoon. Is this the party to whom I am speaking, Mr. Beadle? Yes, this is Mr. Vidal. Oh, hello, Mr. Vidal. This is Miss Tomlin from the telephone company. Uh, the, the name is Vidal. Dal. Dal. Oh, now don't get fresh with me. <laughs> Listen, Mr. Vidal. Vidal. Look, if we can't come to an accord on this, I'm just going to call you by your first name, Gory. <laughs> now then, Gory. I wanted to tell you that I've just seen Myra Breckenridge, and you promised me a part in the picture, and I noticed that it went to Raquel Welch. No, she didn't get the part. Your part went to Rex Reed. (laughs) Well, que Sarah, Sarah. And now, now, Miss Tomlin, well, I've got you here. Oh, now, wait a minute, Mr. Vito. You, you don't quite have me there just yet, you silver-tongued fox. <laughs> I want to complain about a bill. Oh, now, now listen, Miss Gorey. Your problems with Mr. Fabuckley are of no concern to me. Not that bill, or just plain bill. My telephone bill. I've been overcharged. 
overcharged, well, I'd say that's pretty obvious from the books you've been writing. <laughs> now, Mr. Vino Funnily enough, Richard Nixon had appeared on Laugh-In in September 1968 when he was running for president, uttering the familiar Laugh-In phrase, sock it to me. Sock it to me? An appearance which, he said, won him the election. This television show might be the only time Gore and Nixon ever appeared in the same place, although not at the same time. Because, unlike most other presidents of his lifetime, Kennedy, Reagan, Clinton, and others, Gore Vidal never met Richard Nixon face to face. But throughout his political career, Richard Nixon was most certainly on the mind of Gore Vidal. He was fascinated at first with Nixon's audacity to say whatever needed to be said to get elected. But then, Gore became completely obsessed with the Watergate scandal, and watching the pieces fall into place as Richard Nixon got closer and closer to the day he would resign from office. Gore had made his views on Nixon very clear before the election of November 1968. Remember some of the things he said about the Republican candidate during the Buckley debates in August of that year. I cannot possibly imagine Richard Nixon as the President of the United States. Uh, I think he is uh, essentially the hollow man that we always discussed. In which case, I think uh, that Richard Nixon might very well become the next President, and I shall make my occasional trips to Europe longer. Very. I would say that Mr. Nixon was, has proven himself to be all things to all men, if I may quote St. Paul to you. And uh, he continues to do so. And I am disturbed. What is but Richard Nixon did win the 1968 election, and he became the 37th president of the United States. And with his new office, he inherited the Vietnam War from Lyndon Johnson, who had inherited it from John F. Kennedy. Gore appeared on the Merv Griffin Show on May 14, 1970, to discuss Nixon, the war, and what actions Americans could take to try and make a difference in the coming years. And ironically, the reason we are able to listen to this talk show appearance is entirely due to Nixon and his own paranoia. You see, many of the Merv Griffin Show master tapes were erased and reused by CBS, so what you are about to hear was originally lost. It only exists because Nixon wanted to know what was being said about him, so he recorded various TV appearances by both his friends and his enemies on a two-inch video machine in the White House. Greet, if you will, this witty Paul Revere of the talk shows, Mr. Gore Vidal. Even as early as 1970, Merv Griffin perhaps recognized that Gore was out to warn people about Nixon, hence him referring to Gore as the witty Paul Revere of the talk shows. A few hisses out there. Well, I see Mr. Buckley has his people here. So <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> you're, not, you're not universally loved, Gore, but you don't want to. No, I'm like you, Merv. I'm not universally loved. Hello, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's most wonderful seeing you again. How no, but you are outspoken, and you, yeah. and you have to expect those brickbats, because you do get them, don't you? That is very true. I, very I, true. I saw you recently uh, with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, and you were really saying extraordinary things, and audiences were fainting and passing out. What about the silent majority? Uh, yeah. Our great classical scholar for president. <laughs> no, he is. He... <laughs> well, you know, he... Uh, He's the first president who knows about the classics because the, the phrase, the silent majority, is his, and as you perhaps know, it comes from Homer, and it means the dead. <laughs> and the ancient Greeks used to say when somebody died that he's gone to join the silent majority. 
So we have, the we have a president who not only understands his constituency, but he means to expand it through war. <laughs> so this is... I don't, but see, I have never... Nixon gave a very famous speech on November 3rd, 1969, reaching out to what he referred to as the silent majority, a group of people who stood in contrast to the vocal minority, which would be those Americans who were actively and loudly protesting the war in Vietnam. The phrase silent majority with this meaning probably originated in a speech by President Warren Harding in 1919, but as Gore points out, it had originally stood for the dead. Gore is poking fun at Nixon by saying he's a president who knows about the classics, knowing full well Nixon used the phrase for his own purpose, to reach those voters who agreed with him but might not be as vocal as angry protesters. On April 30, 1970, Nixon announced that he was withdrawing 150,000 troops from Vietnam. This sounded like a move toward ending the war and a cause for celebration, but he wasn't bringing these troops home. He was actually just moving them to Cambodia. There had been signs in 1969 that the war in Vietnam was winding down, so Nixon's invasion of Cambodia infuriated those who felt the U.S. had been so close to the end of what seemed like a senseless war. I, I think the country's more involved in that, don't you? Oh, I think Richard Nixon's silent majority collapsed the day he went into Cambodia. Uh, I don't think they're with it anymore. I, and I think it was just, it was a dream of a president who didn't represent really anything except the desire to be president, and he got it. And now, you know, the funny thing, I watched that press conference, and he was so nervous, and, you know, every time that voice gets very sincere, you know he's pulling <laughs> something. But the thing that most touched me was every now and then, he, he tried to get vigorous, because he's heard about other presidents, and he knows the way they act, and... And he said, and I speak as commander-in-chief. And the strange, tricky look comes over his face, you know, as though somebody's going to come with a hook and pull him back. I said, no, no, this is all a dream, Dick. You're back in uh, San Clemente, you know, practicing law, chasing ambulances or whatever Chuck nature it. designed him for. You don't, uh, you don't think he's going to uh, do what Secretary Laird said the other day? Have everybody, all the ground forces out of Vietnam by 71? <laughs> This is Melvin Laird, Nixon's Secretary of Defense. Of course he's not. He's going to stay there as long as he can, unless we stop him. Uh, I, I, think he's a, I think he's a complete victim of the military. I, we don't know whether he's willing or unwilling victim, but uh, they really like war. They don't like losing them, and they're rather embarrassed over this Vietnam thing. But they don't want to end it, so there's a kind of thrust, you know, we, we keep moving and moving. Here we are defending freedom, 8,000 miles from home, we're going, to, we're going to save all the Asiatics from one another. Oh, I loved it, and if I'd been in that press conference, Nixon said, now we can't move out of there, because we would, uh, of our role as the keeper of the peace in Asia. Well, now, who asked us to be the keeper of the peace in Asia? The That's two the largest countries are India and China. To my knowledge, that we've not got a request from either one to be the keeper of the peace of Asia. We can't even do it in Manhattan. <laughs> it's interesting that Gore next brings up impeachment, since this was only May of 1970. The Watergate break-in and subsequent scandal wouldn't occur for two more years. But with all dreams of impeachment come the realization 
that you would be stuck with the current vice president running the country, which, as many feel today, could lead to an even worse situation. Anyway, there's a nice movement afoot which I throw out to all of you, and that is to impeach him. Uh, But there's a chance, no, there's, there's a worry that we would, of course, have Agnew if we returned. Uh, but I think a, an impeachment movement is a useful thing, not that we're going to send these grand guys back home, but it'll put them on notice that the country's not with them. And at the moment, there's a plan in, this, in the state of New York uh, to have a referendum in the November election, which would, in effect, bind the New York delegation to uh, voting for his impeachment. Aren't there other ways that you can <laughs> let him know that you might not appreciate his... It's very difficult to let him know anything. I think that came out when those kids were killed at Kent State, in the cold way that he reacted. You know, he sort of said, well, they had it coming to them. And this whole sense of just not knowing anything is going on. An impeachment proceeding, he'll at least hear about. I mean, one of the secretaries is bound to say, we're sorry, Mr. President, but they're trying to impeach you in the Senate. I mean, he would get, he would hear that. He isn't going to hear anybody marching up and down. He doesn't, he doesn't listen. Nixon's surprise invasion of Cambodia and his ending of college deferments, suddenly forcing students into the draft, triggered a new wave of anti-war protests on college campuses all over the nation. These college students were already opposed to the war, and now they would be forced to fight in it? One such protest occurred at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, in May of 1970. But what began as a demonstration that mirrored what was happening on many other campuses quickly escalated into unnecessary violence and death. On May 1, 1970, 500 students held a demonstration on the Kent State University campus, nothing out of the ordinary for the time. But late that night, the city of Kent began to see widespread vandalism to various businesses, and some police were attacked by demonstrators who threw bottles and screamed obscene things at them. On May 2nd, amidst rumors that there were radical revolutionaries in Kent determined to destroy the town and the college, Ohio Mayor Leroy Satrum became worried that local law enforcement would not be sufficient, so he declared a state of emergency and requested the presence of the National Guard. On May 3rd, 1,000 National Guard soldiers arrived onto the Kent State campus. The governor of Ohio, Jim Rhodes, held a press conference at the school promising to use law enforcement against protesting students. And then on May 4th, 3,000 students gathered on the campus to protest, cheer on protesters, or just watch the proceedings. The 500 or so protesting were told to disperse by the general commanding the National Guard soldiers. The students responded by throwing rocks and chanting. Tear gas was thrown into the crowd, and for the most part, the crowd dispersed. But 28 soldiers who had retreated up a hill began firing into the crowd of students. Four students were killed. The soldiers would later claim that they feared for their lives, even though the closest student was 270 feet away. The students had only rocks as weapons, and worst of all, two of the students who were shot and killed were not protesting. One had walked up to watch the protest, the other was simply walking to class. Photos of the aftermath at Kent State appeared in Life magazine that month, and when songwriter Neil Young saw the images, he was moved to quickly write the song, Ohio, as a reaction to the shootings. The chorus he wrote says, Ten soldiers and Nixon coming, we're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming, 
four dead in Ohio. Murph continues by asking Gore if we've ever impeached a United States president. Well, we have impeached. We impeached Andrew Johnson, but he was acquitted. In other words, we right. haven't, uh, we have not actually succeeded in removing one, but let's not give up hope. Uh, Around this time, Gore had begun to think about writing a new play, and what better subject than the current presidency of Richard Nixon. Even after the Kent State shootings and the further anti-war demonstrations, the general consensus of the country was positive toward the president, and many felt that Nixon had managed to quell an overall uprising. Gore thought that using the actual words Nixon had said mixed with the voices of past presidents would point out the absurdity of modern political thinking. The end result was titled An Evening with Richard Nixon, and we now have a few passages from the play, with Jason Goucher playing the part of Richard Nixon and Meredith Goucher playing the part of a journalist interviewing the president, pointing out the truth when Nixon isn't entirely honest. Gore examines such topics as the economy. The tide of inflation has turned. The rise in the cost of living, which has been gathering momentum in the late 60s, was reduced last year. Actually, it increased by 6.2%. Inflation will be further reduced this year. Inflation will increase in 1971 at the rate of 3.9%. Also, the recent Manson murders. Young people glorify wrongdoers, perhaps because of the dramatic attention criminals get in TV and in the press. Both president and vice president seem to think that the press is in some way responsible for all the crimes it reports. I noted, for example, the coverage of the Charles Manson case when I was in Los Angeles, front page every day in the papers. It usually goes a couple of minutes in the evening news. Here is a man who is guilty, directly or indirectly, of eight murders without reason. Since Manson had not yet been found guilty, Nixon was criticized for prejudicing Manson's chance of a fair trial. I said charge, didn't I? No, Mr. President. And feminism. What is your view of women's lib? I'm not an expert in these things, but my view is, don't be too concerned about the fact that women don't have an equal chance. They do all right in this town. What women have you appointed to high office? But upon hearing this question, Nixon changes the subject. An Evening with Richard Nixon is a strange dramatic work. Gore has past presidents from Washington to Kennedy interacting with Nixon, commenting on many of the issues that plagued his presidency and his often strange responses to them. But despite its cleverness, the play closed after only two weeks, possibly for a number of reasons. The audience it would have attracted was either already against Nixon and well familiar with Nixon's bizarre statements, or they loved Nixon and had no desire to see him presented as a fool and a liar. Or they thought it was going to actually be an evening with the real Richard Nixon, only to arrive very disappointed. Knowing what we know about Nixon now, it is hard to imagine that in 1971 and 1972, despite rampant anti-war protests, Nixon was actually very popular, and he quickly racked up a number of successes. His presidency brought on the first large-scale integration of public schools in the South. He signed an executive order to create the EPA, the Environmental Protection Act, and he had a very productive visit to China, establishing positive communication with a number of Chinese leaders. But through all this, Gorvidal's opinion of Richard Nixon never changed. He always saw Nixon as a man who would say and do anything to get elected, or even re-elected. 
and Gore's suspicions began to come into focus on June 17, 1972, when police caught five men breaking into the Democratic National Committee, or DNC's, headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. What transpired over the next two years became known as the Watergate Scandal, and has been covered many times in many ways, most notably in the 1976 film All the President's Men. But before we take a look at Gore's glee about the situation, here's a quick recap of the Watergate timeline. May 28, 1972. The first Watergate break-in occurs, and a wiretap is set up on the phone of two DNC officials. But the wiretaps weren't working so well, so a second break-in was scheduled for June 17th. This time, the five men attempting to fix the original wiretap were caught and arrested. June 22nd, Richard Nixon holds a press conference denying the White House was involved in any way. August 1st, a check for $25,000 intended for Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign was deposited into an account held by one of the burglars, the first link between the break-in and Richard Nixon. But as we've seen in his first term, Nixon was a very popular president, with more than half of those polled approving of his political performance. So even with Watergate looming overhead, on November 7, 1972, Nixon was re-elected in one of the largest landslides in American political history. January 8, 1973, the Watergate break-in trial begins. January 30th, two former Nixon aides are convicted for their role in orchestrating the break-in. April 30th, two current senior White House aides resign over the scandal and the current White House counsel is fired. May 17th, the Senate Watergate Committee begins public hearings and Senator Howard Baker from Tennessee asks, What did the president know and when did he know it? The very next day, May 18th, Archibald Cox is appointed as a special prosecutor to lead an investigation into Watergate and Nixon's re-election campaign. It is well known that Nixon recorded all his White House conversations, so on July 23, 1973, the Senate investigators request the tapes. Nixon refuses to supply them, and the tapes are subpoenaed. October 10th, Vice President Spiro Agnew gives his resignation, stating it was in the best interest of the country. And as part of the 25th Amendment, House Minority Leader Gerald Ford was nominated to succeed Agnew as Vice President. Ford was confirmed and sworn in on December 6th of that year. October 20th, 1973, the current Attorney General resigns after refusing to fire Archibald Cox on Nixon's order, but the acting Attorney General fires Cox anyway. By November 1973, the Watergate investigation was in full swing, and new facts and revelations seemed to show up in the news almost daily. When Gore appeared on The Dick Cavett Show on November 1, 1973, he discussed his obsession with following each new twist in the Watergate plot. After all, what he had been saying about Nixon for years was finally being realized by the rest of the country. It was Gore Vidal's I Told You So. One of the sad things that has happened to the country is that the empty men, and now in the case of some of the empty bad men, uh, have taken over. But I wouldn't live in any other time than now. I have to have my Watergate fix every single morning in the paper. <laughs> I, I, I get like this if I haven't got... There, are, there are Watergate junkies all, all over oh, the place. People who just... <laughs> it's become an important part of people's lives. And they also discuss the issue of the Nixon tapes. 
I did not know last night. I read a thing on the air about the tapes vanishing, and the audience thought it was a sick joke. Can't you hear the dialogue in the White House? Pat, now you know I put those tapes in that drawer. <laughs> and just, oh, Dick, you know, if your head wasn't screwed on, you'd lose everything. Well, I just knew it was here somewhere. You know, I could just hear all this going on. And That's then, it. oh, I must say, then when they find out that the, that the tapes that they, do, they are getting have, have been doctored, if they do find out. Well, there'll be a couple, I mean, you'll, you'll sort of hear, uh, of course, we could give him a million dollars, but that would be wrong, take two, you know, and it'll be sort of like that. <laughs> well, if he gets caught in that, I must say, I, he just, every day he does something that interests, it's sort of like a rat going around. You keep trying to kill it and he gets away, you know. <laughs> it's just marvelous, he's a great hero. May 9, 1974, the House Judiciary Committee begins impeachment proceedings against Nixon. July 30, 1974, three articles of impeachment are passed. August 5, 1974, the Nixon tape referred to as the smoking gun tape is uncovered, and it shows that Nixon knew about the initial plan, worked to cover it up, and then lied about what he knew. Which led to what happened on August 8, 1974, Nixon resigned. This, of course, pushed Vice President Gerald Ford directly into the office of the President of the United States, making him the only person to take that office without having been elected President or even Vice President. The Watergate scandal had brought shame to the presidency, and the country was certainly ready for something different. So, in 1976, Ford's Democratic opponent, Jimmy Carter, won the election on a platform of higher taxes for the wealthy and a balanced budget. But Carter's victory was narrow, and this push for financial overhaul didn't last long. A wave of conservatism had taken over the nation, perhaps in response to the dirty politics of Watergate. And if Gore had been concerned with Nixon's all-things-to-all-men method of campaigning and winning elections, he would be shocked to see what was soon to come. For the year 1980 would bring to power a man who was very comfortable being paid to appear to be anyone he wanted to be at any time. After all, Ronald Reagan was a bona fide Hollywood actor. Vidolatry is brought to you by We Own This Town. This episode was written and produced by me with additional research by Joshua Reese. Thank you to Jason Goucher and to Meredith Goucher for lending their voices to this episode. You can find more information about this episode at vidolatry.com. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.